Today's passage comes from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. For to us a child is born, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of God. Hi, New Hope. Good afternoon. It's great to see you all, and uh, it's great to be here. And I'm, I'm in a little bit of an unusual vantage point, standing before you to preach God's word, but I'm very grateful for that opportunity and, in fact, that privilege to preach today. Today, uh, we're continuing our series, The Gospel According to Isaiah. Um, this is our second Sunday of Advent. Um, last week, we were blessed by Joe Yoon's sermon, the, the first of our series, when he preached um, from Isaiah 2. And today, uh, our sermon will be from Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 7, although actually I'll be focusing on verses 1 and 2. Um, and thank you, Don, for reading, the, reading God's Word. I'd like to approach these verses from Isaiah by considering them as three stories. And these stories are times. They're the former time, the latter time, and our time. And the themes for these stories are rebellion, judgment, and hope. And the, and the movement is in the direction of hope, the hope of the arrival of Jesus and the bringing of the gospel. So let's begin with the former time, but first I'll pray. Father, I pray that through the word you gave to the prophet Isaiah, we may see more clearly the unchangeable truth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, then and now. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let me repeat again verse 1. Verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, 
the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. So let me talk, first of all, about the former time. The former time is set in the 8th century BC, around the year 720, the story begins, in the divided kingdoms of Israel, and that is Israel in the north, northern Israel, and Judah in the south. Judah, of course, is the land of Jerusalem and the site of the Davidic throne. To the north of Israel at that time is Syria, and to the east was the rising power of Assyria, which within two decades of this time would completely destroy northern Israel, including the lands of Zebulun and Naphtali and the tribes of Jacob. And those were also the places that were the first to fall to the Assyrian armies and most of Judah. And this happens as God's judgment on Israel. So God calls Israel's enemies to crush them for their faithlessness and for their unbelief in the living God. Although their iniquity, their sinful behavior, and their disobedience also provoke God's anger. In the rebellion against God, both kings of Israel and Judah acted against God's commands, which we see in Isaiah chapter 7 and 8. And they did so by attempting to form alliances with their enemies, paying tribute to their rulers as though a kind of protection money would, would ensure their safety. And they also worshiped the gods of Syria and Assyria to try to gain favor from their enemies. King of Judah, Ahaz, refused repeated warnings and appeals of the prophet Isaiah. And he also rejected a direct sign from God of protection, a sort of last chance appeal to the king of Judah, which he ignored. And in doing so, Ahaz showed not only that he rejected God's command, but incredibly that he no longer believed in God if he, if he actually had ever believed in God. So lost is Ahaz in his own self-reliance and arrogance that he rejects God. In 2 Chronicles, we, re we read of Ahaz that he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He made offerings in the valley of the son of Hinnom and burned his own sons as an offering. In the time of his distress, he became yet more faithless to the Lord. In every city of Judah, he made high places to make offerings to other gods, provoking the anger of the Lord, the God of his fathers. And from 2 Kings, we also read, yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer saying, turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I send to you by my servants, the prophets. Then in Isaiah chapter 8, we see God's judgment. 
And here God is speaking to the prophet. The Lord spoke to me again. Because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Remaliah, therefore behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks. And it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck. And its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land. It's God's judgment. And up to the neck means all of Judah would be conquered except the city of Jerusalem, which God spared at that time, which would later be destroyed in the next, by the next Eastern Empire, Babylon, years later. In another passage, Isaiah writes of the Lord's summoning of the Assyrian army like whistling for flies and bees, which shows that's all God has to do. And so to say and to rebuke the kings of Israel and Judah for thinking they could have the power and wisdom to save themselves while rejecting the all-powerful God, who would only need to whistle for Israel's enemies to come, which of course is what happens, although we don't know if God actually whistled. But that's how Isaiah expresses it in his very symbolic language. But the story I want to focus on is not so much the story of the war and the destruction, but of the spiritual state of the people of Israel, their attitude toward God in this former time of gloom and anguish. And so we see a snapshot of the heart attitude of the people of Israel upon receiving God's judgment. We see this in Isaiah 8, in the verses immediately leading up to chapter 9. And those verses read, They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into deep darkness. So we see in these verses that the attitude of these people is not anything like one of repentance for turning away from God, but instead it's one of anger and complaint as though they're looking up to God and complaining to him, and then in despair looking down to the earth. For these people, who were once set apart for God as his people, then chose to abandon their faith for the beliefs and desires of the world. Their mindset continued to be one of rebellion against God, and their heart attitude one of unbelief. And yet what is still part of this story, this story of the former time, the story of rebellion and judgment and darkness is hope. Hope driven by the faith and obedience 
of those who remain faithful to God in this former time, including the prophet Isaiah, who having been saved by God's grace himself, which we would see in book six, hears God's warning to him. So again, from chapter eight, we hear God's word through Isaiah, for the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. And then Isaiah responds to God's warning with trust and patient faith in the Lord. And he says of himself, bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob and I will hope in him. So this first story of the former time It's clearly one of rebellion and judgment for Israel, resulting in the captivity and annihilation of all the tribes in the north. However, even in this darkest time, hope is seen in those who remain faithful, who remain strong in their faith, and by God's mercy and grace. So God gives spiritual to the remnant of faithful people through this time of judgment as he does in later periods of devastation for Israel throughout the centuries. Isaiah's response to God's judgment, which we see in the chapters leading up to chapter 9, the heart of patient faith, much different from the heart of anxious unbelief of those who were once set apart for God as his people, but chose to abandon their faith for the beliefs and the desires of the world. This brings us to our second story. The second story is in the latter time. The verses from the passage we are looking at today that most clearly refer to this latter time, the time of Christ's birth and the time of his ministry, are part of verse 1, verse 2 and verse 6 from the passage we're looking at today. So to make this story of the latter time chronological, we'll begin with verse 6. Verse 6 is, For to us a child is born, to us son is given. Verse 6 announces the birth of Jesus as a human child to us, as a fulfillment of God's promise to his people, which in itself is a great gift. But there's more to this verse, to us a son is given, which speaks of God's love for us. Like in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. 
And in verse 6, we can also see the meaning God gave his son who would give his life. So we see the message of hope of the gospel already in the beginning of this story. Next, the story, of course, moves ahead about 30 years. We see as we go back to verse 1, to the early days of Jesus' ministry, when he, God, has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, by bringing Jesus to exactly that place, to Galilee. But let's add a scene to this story and return with Jesus to the last place he visited before he traveled to Galilee, which was the synagogue in his hometown, Nazareth, where, Je- where Luke tells us that Jesus stood up and read aloud from Isaiah 61. So I think we may be able to project this verse, and I'll begin a little bit before the verses on the screen, a little bit before. Okay, so beginning here, turning to Luke. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, as was the custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of the sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor And it continues, and as he rolled, he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. So there are, like, there are three points that I'd like to take from this event, which, it, which occurs at what is considered the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. The first point is that Jesus identified himself very clearly as the Messiah. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And the second point is that he stated that the first purpose of his ministry is to preach the gospel. Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And the third point is that the people approve of him so far. All spoke well of him despite the fact that he has given them really essentially a one-sentence sermon. And they must have expected much more. They must have expected a complete message at this point. Nonetheless, people in the synagogue were apparently fine with what Jesus said, and fine with Jesus, too, at this point. 
because I think we can imagine people of Nazareth had heard of the miraculous healing that Jesus had done in other places like Capernaum. And so apparently they were pleased to accept Jesus as the Messiah, so long as they believed and they could expect that he would do for them what they had, what they had heard he had done elsewhere, which is to provide them with miraculous physical healing. And maybe just as a curious side note, the end of verse 22 reads, and they said, is not this Joseph's son? Because although they had heard of a prophet performing miracles in the region, they likely would not have known what he looked like until he came to the synagogue, and when they see him, they recognize him. But the important point is in how they still do not know him, as we see from the next thing that happens. Next, Jesus tells them two stories that shatter their preconceived ideas about him. And those two stories are about two foreigners, a Phoenician widow and a Syrian general, people very different from the people in the synagogue. And these two, who had been healed in the days of the prophets Elijah and Elisha, and these people were healed at that time. Well, many Jews were not healed, Jesus tells his story. And these words infuriate the people in the synagogue. And not just some of them, but all of them. They were enraged by these stories. As soon as Jesus corrects their understanding of who he is and why he came, they turn against him. So we read in Luke 4, 28, 29, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and they drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. They were so enraged and maybe they thought they had been deceived. We don't know for sure. Charles Spurgeon explains their response in this way. They did not mind hearing the first part of his teaching, but now that he exalts the sovereignty of God and lays the sinner low, he speaks too plainly for them. They were filled with wrath. What the people of Nazareth did not see about Jesus, what they were blind about was the truth that Jesus had come to give them not what they expected, but what they needed most, the gospel. That is what Jesus' ministry was primarily about. So we read in Luke again, but he said to them, to his disciples, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. And again in Luke 14, verse 10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So we see in Matthew 13, which refers back to 
Isaiah 6, that those who reject Jesus and his preaching of the gospel are those who fail to see who he really is. And I'll read these verses from Isaiah 6, from Matthew 13. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear but never understand. And you will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears, they can barely hear. And their eyes, they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. So as our story of the latter times moves forward once again to Matthew 4, which echoes Isaiah 9, verses 1 and 2, it follows Jesus from Nazareth to Galilee and concludes on a note of hope, much greater hope than the conclusion of our first story in the former time. For those who turn in repentance and receive the good news of the gospel, the darkness of their heart is changed to the light of gospel truth. So as we read these verses from Matthew, in leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region of shadow, of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This takes us to our third story, the one most familiar to us, our time. So I'll begin this story by posing a few questions. So the first question to you, New Hope. In this season of Advent, is the presence of Jesus what you really desire? Do you ever have the feeling that your heart has grown dull? If you don't turn to Jesus every day, what do you turn to instead? So since Zhou Yun's sermon last night, I've been thinking about those high places that he talked about in his sermon, those places up on the hills where so many of the kings and other people of Israel through the centuries, including Solomon, known to be the richest and wisest man, wisest king in the world of his time, went regularly to engage in evil practices, animal and human sacrifice, worshiping other gods. And I began to wonder, why would anyone want to do that? What could possibly be the attraction of those places? Carved images, bowing down to them. I wondered until I read an article by Kevin DeYoung, The Attraction of 
idolatry, in which he cites from an Exodus commentary by Doug Stewart the nine reasons idolatry was so attractive to the Israelites in the cultures of the ancient Near East. So here are these nine attractive points. First, it was guaranteed. If you do the right incantation, you get the right results. Just say the right words and the gods show up. Second, it was selfish. You can get what you want from the gods simply by bringing them the sacrifices they need. Number three, it was easy. You didn't have to follow an elaborate moral code. You just had to put the meat on the altar. Point four, it was convenient. There were religious franchises all over the place. Whereas there was only one place to go, first to the tabernacle and later to the temple, if you were to practice according to the people of God. Number five, it was normal. The only people who did not do religion like this in the ancient Near East were the Israelites. For everyone else, religion was done by idolatry. Number six, it was logical. It made sense that there were lots of gods who specialized in one area of blessing or the other. Number seven, it was pleasing to the senses. There was an appeal to aesthetics and beauty. Number eight, it was indulgent. It was one of the only places people could get meat. Worship took on a party atmosphere filled with gluttony and drunkenness. And number nine, it was erotic. During ritual worship, it was believed that if the worshipers took part in sex, then they were honoring the gods of Baal and Asherah. So as Kevin DeYoung goes on to say, the whole system was guaranteed to be selfish, easy, convenient, normal, logical, pleasing, indulgent, and erotic. And when you look at it that way, the allure of idolatry does not seem that far removed from us. It's easy to see how we can make idols out of everything, DeYoung says, from health insurance to retirement accounts to political candidates to academic approval to sports to entertainment to Facebook to food and sex. What God was telling Israel was not easy for them, nor is it easy for us. But we, we must fight the good fight of faith and shun all idolatry, no matter how common, no matter how attractive. Sinclair Ferguson, pastor at Trinity Church of Aberdeen, Scotland, also preaching from Isaiah 9, makes a comparison between the people of Isaiah's time and the people of our day. And what he says of the people of both times is there is a tendency to believe in almost anything. For the people of Isaiah's day, 
the consequences of believing in anything other than God was God's judgment. The hiding of God's face from them and the deepening of their spiritual alienation from God that could only be distorted by the arrival of Jesus, who would change their hearts and bring the kingdom of God into their lives. Do we, who identify ourselves as Christians, know what's at stake by becoming more like the world around us? To place our hope in pursuits and desires that steal our joy day by day, dull our hearts to his grace. While reading chapter 9 of Isaiah a few weeks back, short story I had read many years ago, probably when I was in college, came to mind. And the story is a story by James Joyce titled Araby. It's about a young boy, maybe 12 years old, who's infatuated with a girl from his neighborhood. So in his desire to impress the girl, he promises to buy a gift for her at a bazaar that will open the following Saturday. He waits all week, distracted and anxious, and then on Saturday he has to wait more. He waits the entire day for his uncle to come home to give him the money he needs to buy the gift. His uncle's late, He's been drinking. He arrives at about 10 p.m. He gives the boy the money. He needs to buy the gift. And the boy gets to the bazaar, and the booths are closing. Only one is still open. The shopkeeper is anxious to leave, treats him with indifference. He looks at the potential gifts, the jars on display, and he decides buy nothing. He walks away. The last line of the story is, gazing up into the darkness, I saw myself as a creature driven and derided by vanity, and my eyes burned with anguish and anger. The language is so similar to the imagery of Isaiah that I wonder if Joyce had Isaiah's vision in mind when he wrote Arabic. It's a simple story, but it captures a meaning I relate to, especially in the season when attempts to secure joy end up in disappointment, weariness, emptiness. And I relate to the impulse to go to a place of bright lights, in winter especially, with the anticipation of buying a last-minute special gift for someone, maybe a family member. For me, it's Manhattan. Train ride to Grand Central, then the walk to Bryant Park, the crowds, the ice rink, those temporary holiday shops that holds some kind of promise, finding the perfect last-minute Christmas gift, and the food stalls along 42nd Street, selecting that one unusual, delectable dish, never choosing the right one, then the coffee or the hot chocolate, 
I heard the hot chocolate is going for $7 this year. The experience never quite fulfills the expectation. This is a season when we can easily be drawn into the world of vanity, dissatisfaction, instead of hope and patient waiting. Recalling those lyrics from O Holy Night, they too seem to echo Isaiah's images of darkness and light. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Don't we feel sometimes that we belong much more to the world that is weary than the world of hope and rejoicing? Sam Albury, in an article called Christmas for the Weary, reminds us that we are made weary not only by our vanity, but also by the burdens of life, much heavier than the prospect of only 20 shopping days left. He writes, Isaiah's famous prophecy concerning the child born to us was written about 500 years before the birth of Christ. And just as God's people needed to have a right understanding as they look forward to that first Christmas, so too we need that same understanding as we look back on it, especially if we are weary. Things that make life hard, he writes, often feel worse at Christmas time. Culturally, we have turned Christmas into a matter of performance. There is the cultural pressure to have life at its Instagrammable best. Impressive looking homes, delicious looking food, precocious looking children. Meanwhile, strained relationships, bereavement, financial difficulties, and uncertainties can feel all the more pronounced. A season of presumed celebration makes the hardships even more apparent. So New Hope, what is the understanding we need to see in this season? And how should we respond? The understanding we need is the truth of the gospel. The gospel that Christ died on the cross for our sins and rose again, so that there is now no condemnation for those who believe, but only everlasting joy. And as we remind ourselves of the gospel, let it be with patient faith, trusting Jesus to turn us from our darkness, whatever and wherever it is, today or tomorrow, and turn toward him. Turn to Jesus in the word, in the reading of the Bible, every day. And let's be thankful and express our thanks before God and one another as we heard from those who stood up in this sanctuary on our praise night two weeks ago and gave thanks to the Lord 
some for the joyful gifts received, and others for the healing of the pain in their hearts. And finally, pray. As we read in 1 Thessalonians 5, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. The New Hope, let's pray. Father, we confess that we are weary, weary of making wrong choices, unhealthy habits, unwise decisions, but we praise you for giving us Christ, who is our wonderful counselor, who hears our prayers and sets us back on the path of righteousness. Lord Jesus, we are weary to face another day of illness and loss. We are so tired of COVID, cancer, pain. We do not have the strength to face the hardships and heartaches of life alone. But we praise you, Lord, for you are mighty and you give us strength and teach us to carry our burdens together. Jesus, we confess we are weary of our failings, of not holding our tongues, not being completely honest, judging others, hiding our sins. But we give thanks to you, Lord, as our everlasting Father cares for his children, who leads us to repentance, who forgives and forgets and welcomes us back. Father, we confess we are made weary by the conflicts of the world, by news of war, and we're weary of our strong-held opinions that turn friendships cold. We're tired of arguments and misunderstandings and unresolved tensions, sometimes lasting for years. But we praise you, Father, for giving us Jesus, the Prince of Peace, who changes our hearts teaches us to reconcile, restores us to you and to one another, and gives us hope for the second appearing of our perfect king and the coming of the kingdom of everlasting peace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.